From the country with the biggest oil reserves in the world to people starving, Venezuela is in a deep humanitarian crisis. What happened? This is what we're talking about today. I'm Michal and I'll guide you through this podcast. By showing you actually the latest satellite picture of... Slow down. For weeks now, the people of Venezuela have been protesting against their president, Nicolás Maduro. Just three weeks ago, the opposition leader, Juan Guaido, declared himself as the new president, against the will of Maduro, of course. So now there's not only a humanitarian crisis, but a severe political crisis in Venezuela. These specific events, that are so well reported by international media, give us a good opportunity to look at the trends that have shaped the situation in Venezuela for many years. We'll start off today with a personal story from Kim, a fellow journalism student from Venezuela. Then we'll move on to look at how different countries have reacted. And we'll finish by attempting to break down the dominating narrative, the failure of yet another socialist state. To understand the situation better, we have to go a few years back in history. Former President Hugo Chavez was in power from 1999 to 2013, and he was generally very popular among the Venezuelan population. Nicknamed Hero of the Poor, Chavez put down prices of groceries, provided low-cost healthcare and better education. He could finance these projects because of all the oil that he has on his hands. An economic crisis changed everything. After the death of Chavez in 2013, the Venezuelan citizens elected current president Maduro by a margin of only 1.6 percentage points. Maduro has his own way to deal with the economic crisis and declining oil prices. Instead of changing the policy of his predecessor, he printed extra money. This caused hyperinflation that's still going on today, and corruption is only making things worse. Still, in 2017, Maduro was re-elected for a second six-year term, but the elections were largely perceived to be flawed. He arrested the two opposition leaders, and journalists and observers were denied access to polling stations. Now, the leader of the National Assembly, Juan Guaido, is challenging Maduro's legitimacy. He declared himself interim president on the 23rd of January. The situation in the country remains unclear, but in this slow news podcast, we'll try to put the events into perspective. Juliette asked an insider to make a start. Yeah, that's right, Michal. I had the chance to talk to Kim, a fellow student of journalism from Venezuela who is currently living in Aarhus. So Kim, how do you feel after the recent events in Venezuela? Well, what I feel as a, as a national, as a Venezuelan, um, I'm very nervous, um, but I've never been this hopeful. As a journalist, it is very difficult uh, to admit that you have political inclines. But when it comes to dictatorships, the only political incline that you have to have is freedom, and somehow you become an activist. I, I feel hopeful. I'm still unworried. For the first time in, the, in a yes, long time? Yes, we're talking about our first democratic president in 20 years. Kim stands with the majority of Venezuelans who disown Maduro and admit Juan Guaido as the interim president of Venezuela. But why? What is happening in Venezuela is a constitutional process. The elections that were held by Maduro in last, last year were fraudulent. They, the way they convoke um, these elections were not in the constitution and they were um, voted by a constituent assembly that is also illegal according to our constitution. We're not inventing this up. So when it was Maduro's time to um, swear in as in another term, those that swearing in um, and that term and that those elections are fraudulent. 
because um, and therefore our constitution says that if elections are fraudulent or there's no president elected president um, by the moment of the Surinim, he's a usurpator and is the National Assembly president, the one that needs to assume the presidency but interim presidency and call for elections within 30 days. Kim was six years old when Hugo Chavez was elected president of Venezuela in 1998. She remembers the hope his election created, but also how harsh the disillusion was when Chavez's rule became more authoritarian. I remember I was in first grade. My professor was telling, you know, in the 2000s, because it was 1999, 1999 it was in the 2000s, our, our project is going to be um, first world countries, um, because Venezuela is projected to be the first develop, um, developed country, not developing, but developed country in, in South America. Because the projections for my country were so good that by now we, we, want, we would be like the richest nation and the most prosperous nation in thanks Latin America. To thanks to the way politics was being done mm. and economics was being done by the moment and the projections. So when I was six years old, I just thought, oh, this is really cool. We are going to be awesome. We are going to be richer and prosper. That was um, the vision. And then it just plummeted. Uh, my mom was being persecuted uh, for signing a referendum. Uh, millions of people were fired from their jobs and they were being replaced uh, by people that somehow share the same interest that Chavez, even though they were not capable of, and we are talking in every level, education level, in all kinds of industry, in oil industry. And that started in 2004 with Lista which is one of the biggest persecutions that, political persecutions that Chavez led. According to Kim, everything has become even worse since then. Corruption has spread in all spheres of society, political opponents have been sent to jail, all diseases have reappeared, and so has starvation. Media often use the word humanitarian crisis when it comes to the current situation in Venezuela. But what does it really mean? Kim gives us a concrete example. Now I'm in Denmark and I realized that going to grocery shopping is normal. And I, that, when I arrived here in August, that was the first time I went grocery shopping, for instance. Why? Because what, what is grocery shopping in Venezuela? Grocery shopping in Venezuela is waiting for a box of a lot of carbs that the government will give you every 15 days and sometimes they will forget and give it to you every three months. Grocery shopping in Venezuela is doing big lines or basing your your diet on what is there and not. For instance, we can have a month without sugar because there's no sugar, there's nothing, and or flour. But next month we have rice and the second month, uh, the other month, we will have spaghetti because that's what the government is giving to you. Like many Venezuelans, Kim has known this fear of starvation. She kindly shares with us a really personal anecdote. My last salary was worth only for buying a bar of chocolate. And that is exactly what I did. I, I finished my job on June and I had to be here in July. They pay me, and I went to this shop and buy a bar of chocolate. 
that was the only thing I could buy and the reason why I sticked on that job was because um, they give you uh, two boxes every month and I only did it for the food. Thank you, Kim, and of course, Juliette. Completely detached from this very humanitarian angle seems to be the international response. The so-called international community is reacting to Guaido's declaration of becoming the new president in different ways. We want to find out their motives. I'm here with Valerie. Hi. Hi. So which was the first country to react to Guaido's uh, declaration? The first country was the United States, or more specifically Donald Trump via Twitter, of course. But closely after that, many Latin American countries and neighbors of Venezuela followed suit. So, for example, Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Argentina all said that they recognize Guaido as interim president. The only Latin American countries that stand on Maduro's side are Bolivia, Nicaragua and Cuba. Okay, so do these last countries have anything in common? They do, actually. Bolivia, Nicaragua, Cuba and Venezuela are all part of the so-called Bolivarian Alliance for the People of Our America. And that is an economic and political alliance that was founded 14 years ago, so way back. And it's not as important today anymore because when the oil crisis hit in 2014 and Venezuela's economy broke down, the alliance became less and less important. But we can still say that the support from Bolivia, Nicaragua and Cuba for Maduro rests on their historic relationship with the country and with Venezuela's long-term leader, Hugo Chavez. Okay, that's interesting because I feel like Western media, um, at least in Europe, focus more on the American reaction and not so much on South America. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, a lot of media reports focused on the US role in the conflict, also because they were the first one to respond. But it makes sense because the US are still the biggest power in the world, as we know today. Mm-hmm. And also it's the closest great power to Venezuela in terms of geography. And in fact, it is really interesting to analyze the reactions of Western countries as well. If we look at the US, for example, a lot more is at stake for them than just their reputation of who they support. It's about oil, for example. As we heard, Venezuela has the biggest oil reserves in the world. It's about refugees. More than three million people have fled the country so far. And as we know, President Trump is not exactly open to allowing refugees (laughs) to the US. And then it's about global influence because two of the most influential global players that do not support Guaido and still stand with Maduro are Russia and China. (laughs) That's surprising. You wouldn't really (laughs) expect Russia and China to support the US anyway, right? Right. I mean, yeah, very often the US and China and Russia are portrayed as opponents, even though Trump, for example, has often underlined his special relationship to Putin, so he kind of likes Russia. But the crisis in Venezuela does reflect some parts of the geopolitical competition between the US, Russia and China. For both Russia and China, there's more to the crisis in Venezuela than just to disagree with the United States. Russia sees Venezuela as a strategic partner. It's close to the US, as I said. Russia wants to profit from Venezuela's vast oil reserves. And Russia has loaned Venezuela 20 billion US dollar. So if there is going to be a new president in Venezuela, Russia cannot be sure that it will keep up with the alliance. So they might lose money and a strategic partner. China also loaned Venezuela a lot of money, three times more than Russia, actually. So it also makes sense for them to support the leader with whom they made those deals. But in comparison to Russia, China is much stronger financially and does not necessarily depend on getting all the money back. So we can assume that the ideological interest is much more important for China than money. Okay, and what does that exactly mean? It means that China probably does not have a big interest in Venezuela becoming a democracy, 
which is likely to happen if a now democratically elected president takes over. China is not a democracy and always struggles for support in the international system, for example in the UN. So by backing the autocrat Maduro, they could get support in the UN in return. And talking about ideology, it's interesting to look at the other countries, besides Russia and China, that still support Maduro. Iran, Turkey, Cuba, Bolivia and Nicaragua. And it's not really difficult to see what they all have in common. A former Venezuelan minister calls them the Autocrats Alliance. And this is really interesting, because not all countries that support Guaido are democracies, but also there's no democratic country that backs Maduro. So now we have some countries that accepted Guaido right away and others that still stand by Maduro. What I think is interesting is that some countries declared their opinion right away and that others took quite some time to, to express their statement. Some EU countries, for example, took a long time. Um, why is that? Yeah, you're right. And actually, it's really interesting to look at the European Union, because even though the EU quite quickly announced that they would acknowledge Guaido, a lot of countries that are in the EU took a lot longer to issue their statements. And that is mainly because no one wanted to set a precedent with Venezuela. That means that they don't want the opposition in other countries now to think, well, everyone supported Guaido, so we can also just declare someone else the new president. That is why there were lots of discussions about the exact phrasing, for example. Should European countries recognize or simply acknowledge Guaido? No one wanted to go too far too soon. That's why they first gave Maduro an ultimatum of eight days in which he should call for new elections. And as expected, Maduro ignored the ultimatum. So after that, now most European countries made a coordinated move and recognized Guaido as interim president. But they still urge him to hold free and fair elections soon. Okay, thank you, Valerie. And at this point, we don't really know if that will happen soon, because Maduro still acts as a president and the military still supports him, and they are arguably the most important factor right now. And even if they switch to support Guaido, it's still to be seen if he will actually hold new elections. As Valerie has mentioned, the political system of the different states play a role in their position of the Venezuelan crisis. But also the system of Venezuela is often portrayed as a simple failure of socialism with the possible solution of capitalism. Our two colleagues Luis and Luisa tried to take a closer look at this issue. Yes, indeed, Michal, we'll try to do so. So some media outlets have described the political, social and economic crisis in Venezuela as a failure of socialism. As Francisco Toro, a Washington Post columnist, writes... The American conservative media sphere in particular has pointed out the Venezuelan catastrophe as a danger of socialism. The columnist emphasizes that socialism might have played a role in the Venezuelan turn of events, but he still argues that socialism is only a small part of a much bigger picture. Even so, we would like to use this podcast as an opportunity to discuss the difference between socialism and capitalism. Capitalism is often described in contrast to communism, But given that we're talking about Venezuela today, we'll focus on socialism. Venezuela has long been considered a socialist state, and Hugo Chavez's policies are an important factor in that image. As Michal and Valerie explained earlier, Chavez became known as the hero of the poor because he worked to provide low-cost healthcare, education and housing, while cutting down prices of everyday goods. The idea of these policies was to distribute wealth in a more equal manner so that the poorest citizens of society would also have access to basic necessities and that they would have the same opportunities as wealthier parts of the population. However, as a CNN journalist pointed out after Chavez's death in 2013, 
The leader's 21st century socialism, as he called it, also left the Venezuelan economy in a weak state, and that worsened even further after Maduro took over. Articles suggesting that socialism has caused the collapse of the Venezuelan state seem to imply that capitalism is a much better economic system that could solve the Venezuelan crisis. At the same time, many people in Western societies are known to be openly anti-capitalist, especially since the financial crisis in 2008 denounced capitalism as a system. But what does it even mean to say that we're anti-capitalist? And can we really say that a capitalist society works better than a socialist one, or vice versa? My colleague Luisa will try to find out in our podcast this week. Indeed, Louise, thanks. So me, for the last couple of years, I've been politically active in different institutions and ways, always broadly calling myself an anti-capitalist. This came mainly from my refusal to accept that economic growth focused on the individual accumulation of wealth as a solution to poverty. I'm from Germany, one of those Western states where capitalism has been the dominating system for the last couple of centuries. A free market is seen as a guarantee for full individual freedom. But living in the system doesn't feel like freedom. Instead, materialism appears to restrain me more and more. And in my opinion, it is especially a prevention of equality and a good life for the people around myself. The idea of socialism is that the state should have a much more central role in ensuring the well-being of individual citizens. The idea of competition is mostly rejected in a socialist ideology because community is valued over individuals. For me, this idea seems, or rather seems, to be tempting. And I'm pretty sure that these thoughts are not new to most of you, our listeners. But what if being anti-capitalist is just as short-sighted as anti-socialist media frames? After all, people thrive and suffer in both systems, based on economic or political definitions. So what is left? I cannot provide you with a solution to that dilemma. But we can try to find a way of living with it. For this, first of all, we have to see socialism and capitalism as two extreme ends of a socio-economic system rather than two completely opposite models. The strict opposition between socialism and capitalism is a political rivalry between political actors and their agenda, rather than something that is naturally given. But just because a government is deemed socialist, it does not mean that there are no capitalist tendencies or that there are no socialist tendencies in an otherwise capitalist economy. Take Denmark, for example. As with other Nordic states, the Danish government is mostly seen as one that ensures the public provision of welfare for all citizens, because it is concerned with social equality between people from different socio-economic backgrounds. However, many of the services that were once provided by the government are increasingly taken over by private companies in Denmark. For example, the power company Dong Energy was once owned by the Danish state and managed oil, gas and electricity resources in the Danish part of the North Sea. However, the Danish state sold the company to Goldman Sachs in 2014 which earned the state a lot of money. However, as Olaf von Kirkeby, professor at the Copenhagen Business School, has said, privatization of public services may lead to a loss of common values. Private companies are mainly, if not exclusively, concerned with efficacy and profit in order to stay above water in a competitive market. They therefore have little regard for social responsibility, whereas the state has a duty to do what is best for society. That means maintaining a sustainable economy, 
respecting democratic principles and being transparent about their actions and decisions. So, how do we wrap this up, Louise? Well, Louisa, in the end, I think it's important to realize that in a way, there are common values in both the socialist and the capitalist system. The well-being of individual citizens and the nation as a whole, the respect of human rights, access to education and healthcare, and so on. But as you've just explained, governments in different political systems try to ensure these values in different ways. So living in one or the other system clearly influences the lives of citizens. But we can try to focus less on the importance of the system. Even though it sounds idealistic, these universal values should be more important. Our talk about capitalism and socialism has been an attempt to break down dominant narratives about the origin of the crisis in Venezuela. To return to the topic of our podcast, it's important to remember that the political crisis was caused by a combination of factors and not simply by socialist legacies. We cannot explain the crisis and how the country got to its current situation by relying on socialist ideologies, nor by arguing that capitalism would have been a better option. We cannot argue that capitalism is a better socio-economic model or that it is the solution to the current situation. As both systems are value-based, we can at least try to remind ourselves of these values before simply identifying with one or the other system. Thank you, Louise. Thank you, Louisa, for your insights. This brings us to the end of our show. And who can better conclude than Kim, the young Venezuelan woman who we listened to at the beginning of our show? She explains what she expects from her country once she goes back after her studies here in Oz. I The thing is, at first, I still cannot believe what happened. So I think Venezuela has a lot of professionals, very capable people. Uh, because during these 20 years, we've learned what is not okay. And by learning those things, we know what is okay. And I think I'm going to find a country that is being reconstructed. I think my country is in ruins. And, and they will need you. They And they will need a lot of us there to put a hand on it and, and start rebuilding our nation. So I, I don't think I'm going to find a country that is perfect. But I'm going to find a country that is free of opportunities to make it perfect again. Thank you for listening to this week's Slow News Podcast. This was the start of our new semester. From this week onwards, we will be back every second week with a new podcast. Stay tuned for more Slow News. By showing you actually the latest satellite picture of... Slow down.